I just said the guys just don't invite me anymore. This is all Bill. I know. I said they just. I just. I just hear sporadically when you know when they when they want some decent information on some juicy gossip on the top pro tour stuff. <laughs> I get a call up. Apart from that. PJ, you are the hardest person to get hold of, I got to say. I texted you last night at like 7 o'clock. You texted me this morning at 6 o'clock in the morning. I t- if you check, your, I messaged you at 10.30 last night. <coughs> hold on. Check in now. Verification. Right. I texted you about 10.30 last night when I got the message. said, what time? Paul Johnson. Yeah. I said, oh, you're right. 10.16. Oh! oh! Go! <laughs> Case and point. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Fair enough. Your Honor. Surrender, surrender. All right, we're ready to roll. Let's let's go. Let's do it. About to leave. Already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. What about this? This call is being recorded. Uh, fans, we are back for another edition of the weekly roundup, catching up on the headlines and results from the professional tour and college squash. But we have an action-packed episode today. Bill is back, and we have a few guests joining us. Bill, you want to give the overview? Yeah, for sure. Very excited to be back. Um, obviously, there was a little bit of uh, excitement in at Canary Wharf last week, and we are honored, honored slash privileged to have uh, – PJ Paul Johnson back on the show. Um, I, 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 I'm not sure what to say. Uh, people are asking, where's PJ? Where's PJ? And uh, I always tell them I try to get PJ on the show. He's my second favorite co-host, um, but he's tough to get a hold of. But welcome, PJ. Guys, it's great to be back. Um, just for the record, Bill hasn't been trying to reach me at all. He, he just likes to take all the glory. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, a two horse, kind of two horse race with you two guys, but uh, I feel honored and privileged, likewise, to be back on the show. It's, uh, I, I've missed you guys. I'll be honest. I've, I've missed you. Likewise. Is, uh, I miss the is, sanity. Uh, d- <laughs> d- down, down in Philadelphia for the Junior Nationals last week, uh, last weekend, uh, PJ, yeah. were people, people asking about the podcast? Um, I actually had, true story, I had four separate people. I didn't realize we had that many fans. But uh, <laughs> asking when I was next going to be back on the show, and uh, I was... Sorely missed. You guys obviously doing a terrific job without me. Uh, nobody being on mentioned, the show, but no, nobody mentioned. No, no, nobody no. said those guys are doing a good job. Without no, they you. did say you, you didn't hear me properly. It's that like selective hearing again, Bill. I said that everybody said the guys are doing a great show, great job on the show without you. But uh, you, you, you are you're sorely missed. So sorely missed. And here yes. we are. Here we here are. We are. Like, yeah. Bringing the band back together again, <laughs> which is which is great. Yes. Connor, doing well. Have a good weekend down in D.C.? Yeah, it was good. It was uh, St. Patrick's Day and uh, actually got out out of the house and uh, went to a, a St. Patrick's Day party with true Irish flavor, like I was telling you last week. And um, it, uh, the, the quick story there, which is uh, the gentleman that was hosting it um, was the man who introduced my parents 53 years ago. Oh, wow. So, so he, oh, cool. he's the reason why basically I exist. And uh, <laughs> and it was also on St. Patrick's Day. So my, my folks met. He introduced my parents on St. Patrick's Day. So full wow, circle. Wow, that's cool. That's amazing. That is, I have nothing sarcastic to say about that, Connor. That's really yeah. good. That's really nice. That's amazing. What a story. That's what cool. a great story. Yeah, it's, it's a, a great, great story, story, Connor. See, Connor, you're not as all as uninteresting as people make you out to be. <laughs> he doesn't get a chance to speak, Bill. It's just nice he's actually got an opportunity to say something. <laughs> well, today, Connor, we are going to go over um, the. It was almost three episodes, I think, we got through without talking about Mustafa Assal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And we were like missing. You know, he got knocked out early at Black Ball. Uh, he was off the radar since the uh, the Houston incident because of his also at TOC. He left early because of his illness and um, his little infighting with Victor Cruin. But back in the spotlight at Canary Wharf. Um, so I'm going to lead it off. So in in the end, Paul Call beat Joel Macon in the final at Canary Wharf in a very in 82 minutes. It was it, it was boring, so I'm, I'm not going to put it any other way. It was very boring to watch. and uh, But the semis, on the other hand, were not boring. The semis were awesome, awesome to watch. But the controversy arose, um, obviously, in the uh, semifinal. Again, with Joel Macon playing Asal. He beat Asal in five, 11, eight in the fifth, um, 97 minutes. Controversy abound with 
Mazzarella, John Mazzarella was refereeing. Did- I saw a few snippets, and before you get into the, the point or the discussion point you're going to make there, Bill, I actually felt that John Mazzarella was uh, extremely hard on herself. There was one decision in particular where John Makin somehow got a let for, he said that Asal had used his left hand and put it in his face, which, I mean, John Makin's a tough boy, okay? This is a guy that's potentially going into boxing after he's played. John, the, the referees ended up giving a let ball for the decision. They're starting to now look for things that aren't even there. There was no contact whatsoever. Sometimes if you lean into a ball as you're about to strike, you need the opposing hand for a little bit of balance. And that's all LaSalle was doing. There was no movement towards the face of making. There was minimal contact, if any. And the fact that they were giving decisions of that ilk uh, for those kind of situations for me um, was really poor form. And I, I feel that initially I felt that a lot of these referees weren't biased or targeting a sale per se, but in this particular match, I felt that on many occasions he was extremely hard done by. Uh, agreed, and I'm glad you yeah. brought that one up, uh, and I'm glad you watched that because that was yeah. there were two mysteries in this. Well, there were a lot of mysteries in this match. I think yeah. Macon made it clear after his quarterfinal win over Moman that he was not going to play his normal game and that he was going to go and play a Sal's game and, like said, be physical and. I think I'm trying to think what his quote was um, here. I have it written down. He said, uh, I played free flowing squash all week, but it's not going to be like that tomorrow. So basically he knew going in what his game plan was going to be, which was going to be go after the body and then look to the ref to make the, have the calls go his way. And they did for the most part. I mean, there was, you know what refing it, if anybody, if you guys watched the NCAA basketball tournament at all this weekend, in which, which there's a lot more at stake, I think, than I think we could all agree than any PSA match. There's millions and millions and millions of gambling dollars, dollars to the schools. And some of the calls and these basketball games this week were baffling. But that's sports, right? Yeah. So w- with the assault Macon match, I think it was I think the controversy, not the calls themselves. It's the fact that Macon played a different game than he normally plays. He purposely tried to agitate. Asal purposely went after the body and purposely tried to take advantage of the bias that I think I agree with you, PJ. There's a bias against Asal. I don't think I don't think anybody yeah. could deny it at this point. And I yeah. make and took advantage of it to win. Now, that's professional sports, right? You do what you need to do to win. But what I don't want to hear from Joel Macon is before and after these matches is how oh, this is not how I want to play. This is not what squash is. This is not the free-flowing squash that everybody wants to see. Man, you're a part of this. You're part of it now. You're in the mud. You want to be in the mud? Uh, you know, grow some mud gills, as they say. You're, you're part of this muck and mire now. So don't try to be high and mighty and talk about free-flowing squash when you basically took what was a premier match against the number one player in the world and turned it into a football game. And it was your fault. You did it. Um, I'm slightly going to disagree. I don't think it was all down to Joel Makin. Joel Makin is making the point being that he's not going to step on the court with a Sal who is a bully and he's not going to just roll over and have his belly tickled. He's going to get stuck in and he's going to he's going to stand toe-to-toe with a Sal and if a Sal is going to dish it out, then Makin's going to give it back. And I, and I'm, I fully respect him for that attitude because... Making makes it very clear in all of his interviews, he's not out there to make friends. He's not there to be shaking hands with these guys after the match and going for a beer like some of the players do. He's out there to win. He wants to beat the, his opponents and he's going to do whatever he can within his capabilities to win. And I fully respect that. Other players, your likes of Farag or, unless Farag's playing too well, your, your um, uh, Tarek Momans and your Dutukis, will get bullied and overrun by Mustafa Asal because of the physical aspect of the game. Which, if you look, Joel Makin generally does play very free-flowing squash. You look at the final, there weren't many decisions to be made. Joel Makin, when he played Elias, no issues at all. Joel, Joel Makin's run through uh, against Tarek as well. No issues with the movement. Every time there's a controversy with some movement amongst the press, there's always one common denominator, and that's Mustafa Asal. Other players, when they play against each other, don't have these problems. So there's clearly an issue there. And I actually respect Joel for the way he's come out and he's just said it as it is. And he's not, he's not, he's not sugarcoating it. 
I, he stood his ground with Mustafa Assal, and when there were situations around the middle of the tee, he would give back Assal as much as he was getting in return. So I, I, I thought he handled the situation. Had Maitke not played the way he did, he would have lost that match. True. No, I agree. And I agree with a lot of that. And by the way, I love the, the scratch your belly, pet your belly imagery. That was awesome. Um, <laughs> I agree with that. But in the Assal match, as if you watch the Cole match, there were a lot of similar plays where Macon was going after the ball and call got in his way, whether purposely or not is not, you know, that's for you to decide where Macon didn't argue and didn't complain every time a saw, whether it was, you know, a, a real lat or a real stroke, he complained. That was the difference. So Macon did not watch match point against call match point against call was like a, a, the same ball that was played 15 times against a saw that Macon argued every time it was match ball. Macon just looked, look back, didn't argue at all. So, I mean, no, he was, because, he was because looking what, to stir up controversy. He, he, he knew he was fighting fire with fire. Now, when he's playing against Paul Cole, there's a mutual respect there. John Macon doesn't respect Mustafa Assal as a person. He, res- he respects him sure. as a player, sure. okay, which you have to do because he's a phenomenal squash player. And you can't hide that. But the way he plays the game, Mustafa Assal, is unacceptable and it's got to change soon because if it doesn't change soon then I think we could potentially see a very short career from him so Joel Makin's on court with a player that he respects in in the form of Paul Cole and there would be some traffic issues but they wouldn't have the same magnitude or intent or severity that they would have been with his match against the cell that's why Joel Makin's attitude himself would have been slightly different. That would have not dete- deterred any kind of will to win or desire from Joel Makin to try and beat Paul Cole. That would always be there. And the fight would have been just as, as ferocious in his own mind. But the, the, the physical interactions with Paul Cole weren't anywhere near as A, frequent or B, as extensive. So that's why I think Joel's ma- mindset would have been ever so slightly different. So number one, PJ, I don't appreciate you coming on with salient points that refute my point of view. So <laughs> okay. Connor, you, Connor usually just lets me ramble on about things, even though it could be nonsense and I could be completely wrong. So the fact that you come on with some expert opinion, making sense, I, I'm not a big fan of that. So don't, <laughs> okay. don't, that don't explains why yeah, I'm not. I was going to say, picking up on uh, yeah, sanity. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, um, by the way, I mean, the man of the tournament uh, at Canary is really making that story. It's just unbelievable what he's done. And I think, too, um, he knew what he was getting himself into uh, in terms of going into the match against Assal. He said it clearly. He he said all his intentions. And and by the way, if he had lost, right, he's not he's not the kind of guy that is complaining like, well, Assal did this. He knows what he's going to get himself into, and he's adjusting to the man. It's fair. He came across a bit whiny to me for somebody with that tough image. And, you know, I don't I, think of Macon as whiny. No, but it's because like he doesn't want to play that way. Fine, under understood, understood. So here's here's now, PJ. You you didn't see this, and Connor, nor did you. I told you a little bit about. Last I saw night, this so part. Yeah, oh, you did. You I see saw it? the okay. the the latter half, not the beginning. So, but okay. The... So PJ, end of yep. end of end of game three, right? Okay. Um, Macon asked for a new ball. Totally, totally right. Right after yep. the end of the game, singles yep. up to Mazzarella, want a new ball. All good. Don't need both players to agree. It's part of the rules. He wants a new ball. Mazzarella gives him the new ball. All good. They yeah. play the fourth game. Um, Macon wins the fourth game. Okay. Walk off court. Macon claims that the ball that they just played game four with is broken. Okay. And he tosses the ball to Mazzarella. Mazzarella throws him a new ball. This is without consulting with Asal. Okay. Asal says, hey, where's the ball? Like, And Mazzarella says, oh, I don't have it. And Asal, yeah, exactly. The look you just gave me, if you were okay. Egyptian, would be the same exact look that Asal gave uh, Mazzarella. Mazzarella, yeah. So yeah. Mazzarella, in turn, had given the ball to some guy sitting next to him in the stands as a souvenir. So that guy holds up the ball and yeah. throws it back onto the court, intercepted by Macon, who then takes the ball, turns to Asal and shows it to him. And Asal says, let me see it. Macon will not give him the ball. Asal says again, let me see the ball. And Macon, hold, literally like a little kid, like holding a ball away from another little kid trying to get it, would not let him take the ball and examine it, and then took it and threw it back to Mazzarella. Mazzarella then warns Asal to stop delaying the game. Right. I, I mean, unheard of, right? I mean, that is like, yeah. I, yeah. I didn't understand it. If Mazzarella had just said, make Joel, 
give him the ball. Otherwise, I'm going to give assert a conduct against you. And then all, if the ball's broken, it's broken, right? And there's no controversy. There's none. You're already a step too far down the line. What Mazzarella's doing, giving the ball to somebody as a souvenir, I don't know. What Mazzarella should do is check the ball himself. He's the head ref. Mm-hmm. Ref, he as the ref has control of that match. He should determine the condition of the ball. If Joel sure. Makin's thrown it out, he doesn't need to show the ball initially to Mustafa Rassel. He right. can show the referee. Yeah, because the ref is the arbiter, not the other player. Correct. <clears throat> it's then down to Mazzarella to determine whether the ball is broken or not. He should, if the ball's broken, fine, give it to somebody as a souvenir and then mm-hmm. offer the new ball. But if the ball then comes back out, Mazzarella for me is is fully responsible for that situation unfolding, 100%. So so should Mazzarella not have to show the ball to Asal to say, when Asal says, wait a minute, I, no. I didn't see the ball is broken. It's, Here, toss it toss it back. You don't have no, to do so, that. No, no. If, if, if Makin's thrown the ball to John Mazzarella, the, the referee then determines whether that ball is fit for play. Mm-hmm. It's not down to the... The, An, the player. Yeah, another example of that is when you you know your racket's broken or equipment. You don't turn to the player to say, "Oh, look at my racket." It's the arbiter is the referee. They make the determination. Yep. Okay, so that's understandable. So where the where the mess up is then in this at this point is Mazzarella giving that ball to the guy next to him, who then who then throws the ball out back out to the court. Yeah, was that you catching the ball, PJ? Or are you swatting a fly? It's a fly. It's a, I've got fruit fly in the house, Phil. That was Sorry. funny. If you, if, if those watching at home, I pretended mimic throwing a ball and PJ mimic catching it, but it was a fly. Um, but so, so at that point, when Joel's holding the ball and showing it at that point to Asal, just to eliminate all controversy, wouldn't common sense say that Maswell should say, just show him the ball? Um, yeah, it could, I mean, it could be gamesmanship. Just, it could be potentially, but that's head games between yeah. making and the cell. Hundred okay. percent. Yeah, Joel, just, Joel could have shown him, but obviously he doesn't want to give anything to a cell whatsoever. Right, right, but, right. But that's a situation that's got completely out of control purely because of the referee. Right, yeah. right. No, a hundred percent. So that was one of the one of the it was just that was one of those things that added fuel to the fire. Right, all the yeah. con- all the um, internet conspiracy theories that why that why someone why people don't want a sal to be at the top of the sport that just adds fuel to it so in the end what bothered me most because it was a great tournament there was some great matches and um um we'll get to we'll get to the will strop Sherbagi match in a minute i don't know if you guys saw that it was just did, pheno- yeah. it was phenomenal but at the end uh paul call beat um uh, beat Farag in the, in the other semi which was a 98 minutes just a great match and uh, you know this is this is where again I, I have problems. Here's Paul Call's quote at the end of that match. My mom messaged me saying it's so good to have Ali back just to watch that those sort of matches. He is such a clean player, and I hope the whole world enjoyed it. <laughs> Come on. Did Paul Call's mom really message him that? <laughs> he probably did. Yeah. No. That's, Why? That's basically, it's because it's basically them talking about the free-flowing squash, and they don't want to play the other kind of squash. And Okay, fine. We get it. Okay? You guys are clean. You guys never do anything wrong. It's all Mustafa saw. We get it enough already. I don't want to hear one more post-match press conference or one more interview about the free-flowing squash. I never want to hear the term free-flowing squash again. It's so funny, Bill, because you're the one that's bringing it up. Yeah, no. <laughs> but it's like F- so, so free-flowing squash, FFS. What else does FFS stand for? Right? Not that we're allowed to swear on this podcast. Otherwise, okay. So let's take let's 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 look at the good stuff. The Mustafa, the uh, Muhammad Al Shabagi. James Wolstrop match was yeah. a joy, a joy to watch. That was um, it was like turning back the clock for those two. Um, two complete contrasting styles of play, and the, uh, probably one of the best adverts for the game. I personally am a massive fan of Canary Wharf in general, but uh, the, the venue they've got there. Unfortunately, they're leaving the Winter Gardens now after twenty years. But that setting as a player is about as good as it gets because the the as you see when the when the players come out the back of the court the the viewers in the back row actually have to move their feet backwards out of the way so the players can actually get past them the, there's no venue that I know where the the fans are so close to the court tournament of champions they're pretty close but there's still a border around the outside of the court but so obviously you've got the setting and you've got the venue but I actually really enjoy a best of 3 system me too. Um, from I just feel that the game does need more 
high octane points and scenarios within a match and the players you can tell that their warm-ups are a little more extensive the importance of the first game is very apparent and they can't afford to 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 go one game to love down it puts the players on edge um and i just feel that it's it's like a perfect scenario the, the best of threes so two out of three i i think it i think the 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 best uh, advertisement for two out of three is the fact that that will strop match wouldn't have happened in the way it did. If it was three out of five, I don't th- I think uh will probably would have lost probably three games to one or definitely lost in five with the fifth game being pretty much meaningless. Yeah. So I just think that system is just, uh, it's great for the players. The players enjoy it. Um, as I, I don't know how far into the chat we got, but um, it puts them more on edge. The warm-ups have to be more extensive coming into the match. Uh, the importance of that first game. And there's just more thrilling points and more exciting points that seem to come up. More 100%. tie breaks, more tie breaks. And if you look at a, a decent best of three, you're probably still looking around anywhere from the 40-minute to an hour mark for a, a good best of three. And it's not too dissimilar to a, a, a reasonable best of five. So if you look at the time differences between the two, there isn't really that much, believe it or not. It's kind of it's quite a bizarre how that figures that figures out. Yeah. But, and yeah, PJ, what do you what do you think about um, when it goes into the semis or the finals, then switching to three out of five? I like it. I think it brings another dynamic in. Um, it certainly favours the more attritional styles of players, hence why you see Paul Cole and Joel making making it through. But the way they came through the earlier rounds, you've got to credit their uh, their squash for being able to do that. Um, the, the the best of five definitely implements a certain aspect of the old traditional style of game. The more longer physical rallies, playing yourself in. You probably you might even see a few more comebacks in a best of five as opposed to the best of threes, but I just feel the best of threes early on is much more dynamic. It's much more explosive. Uh, the fives tend to be just uh, I don't know. It's kind of just ever so slightly slower, ever yeah. so slightly slower. I agree. I, I wish it. Was, I wish the whole tournament was best best two out of three. Myself uh, yeah. understanding completely why it, it probably can't be because you know the semis and the finals people pay big dollars for those kind of tickets and uh, uh, understanding that. All all I have to say in wrapping up this 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 tournament talk, um, and you know there's a lot of anti anti Asal um, um, people out there. I don't know if we want to go back to watching finals with Call and Paul and Macon playing each other. It was boring. It brought me back to the Willstrop Matthew matches, which you know what? There's certain fans who like that, but I think we've moved beyond that. And the Egyptian domination has really brought some new fans into squash and the excitement of that kind of play. Watching Call play Macon, I had to turn it off. I couldn't watch it anymore. Two great players, obviously, playing a whole different brand of squash, but it was unwatchable to me. So I hope we don't go back to that. I can't go back to. I can't go back to that. That was definitely one for the purists. I, I, I hear what you're saying. The game has evolved. The game has changed. It's become more explosive, dynamic. But I also feel that when you see what Paul Cole does and what John Makin do, that's an element of the game that's almost a dying art. The ability to, if you watch Paul Cole, okay, a lot of people say he's boring to watch, but you, you have to respect and admire his accuracy, his consistency, his straight hitting. The ability to do that, and Paul Cole never has a bad movement day, by the way. He's world-class. He's a world-class mover. Sure. With, with certain other aspects of his game, people could argue aren't quite world-class per se, and he, he's got areas that he could improve. But he's just won that tournament there. He's He's got a style of squash that is very, very hard to break down for a lot of the other opponents. And sometimes it, it's not aesthetically pleasing to the eye but for somebody like myself who came from that attritional style of play I do respect what he's trying to do on the court the, the the targets that he hits on such a consistent basis is extremely uh impressive and and a lot harder to do than some might think yeah I mean my grandmother messaged me after that match and said she's really appreciative of the free-flowing squash and, and wishes <laughs> wishes to see more of that and is was really glad that us all got knocked out so oh, she, um, she she knows her squash she yeah knows she grandma. knows her squash for sure yeah. shout out shout out grandma 
Um, last thing on the on the PSA, we'll we'll, uh, we'll wait until we get some news on the assault. We hear rumors on the internet and all on message boards and on Squash Mad that a looming suspension is going to. Uh, there's a looming suspension for assault that he is most possibly going to miss um, both the British Open and the World Championship. So we'll wait yeah. till next week when that news becomes official and the ramifications beyond that. So yeah. to finish up with our PSA talk before we bring on our our second special guest of the day. Um, there was a women's 20K down in um, D.C. Uh, this week. Um, it was the St. James tournament. Um, and the only reason it is noteworthy to me is uh, Simi Chan from Columbia beat her Columbia teammate Frida Mohammed in in the finals. Uh, Mofrida played number one all year when, when she decided she wanted to play for Columbia, when she decided there was a PSA event. She skipped the Columbia matches, but that's that's me ranting on a different subject. Um, but Simi Chan coming off her um, her win in the CSA individuals beat... Um, beat Frida Muhammad in three straight games. The reason I was glad that Simi won, besides the fact that I like Simi Chan, is that in the semis, Farida beat our girl, Jana Shia, and knocked <laughs> knocked her out of the tournament. And I was really hoping for a Jana Shia win. Jana Shia, during that tournament, gave us a Jana Shia tweet. And I know we all look forward to the Jana Shia tweets. And the Jana Shia tweet for this week was, everyone has their yellow paint. Now, do any of you guys know what that is referencing? No. Anyone? Absolutely no, no clue. Everyone has their yellow paint. So Vincent Van Gogh, um, uh, the Yellow House, his famous painting, The Yellow House. Vincent Van Gogh, when he was in the sanitarium at the end of his life, uh, was purported to drink yellow paint because it was his favorite color. And he thought having yellow paint inside of him would make him happy. So John Ashia, obviously much more learned than any of you three here uh, says everyone has their yellow paint, meaning everyone has something that makes them happy. So before there's we also, move on, there's also Bill, you make a ton of crap up. So, um, <laughs> you know, Google it, man. I, Google it. I love the interpretation of that, but we don't know okay, unless you, unless you Google confirmed it. it. Did you confirm no, it with her? I okay. Have, I don't, I don't have to confirm it. My Van Gogh knowledge is second to none. on There, this podcast. there could I be don't... as much truth in that comment as Paul Cole's <laughs> mum messaging Paul Cole saying that she's glad. Yes, that exactly. Alice so, which, is, which is the truth, which is the truth. My <laughs> knowledge of Van Gogh or Paul Cole's mom texting him yeah. saying she loves FFS I, for fuck's sake. I for was, fuck's sake. We'll bleep that out. I was thinking the same caution thing that Simba was saying. So um, anyway, so, there, so, there are different so be, schools out there. So before we move on, uh, just thinking that I'm right, and I am right, by the way. You guys could Google this. Uh, PJ, what yeah. is your yellow paint? What would be my yellow paint? Um, <clears throat> about three years ago, I joined a, a golf club in the southeast of England called Sundridge Park. And it's mm -hmm. the only club in the area that actually hosts two 18-hole golf courses. And my yellow paint would be to spend pretty much the entire day down the course. They've got uh, an amazing restaurant, but outside in the, in the spring and the summertime, once it gets to about, I don't know, anywhere from 18 to 25 degrees, that's uh, obviously British weather. So we're talking maybe yeah. anywhere between 70 and 80 degrees um there's a lovely veranda and decking out the front of the course which overlooks the first tee the 12th green and also the 18th green so i'll sit there i'll have a little bit of breakfast and then just over the front of the decking in just by the side of the the tee box and the greens <clears throat> there's a lovely little chipping and putting area so that would be my yellow paint i'd go down have a nice little bit of a, a feed a cup of coffee or a cup of tea depending on what mood i'm in and then spend the next couple of hours just watching people tee off, hit hit twelve and eighteen, and I'll be practicing my short game on the uh, on the, the little green side area there. That would be my yellow paint. That's awesome, Connor. Anything? I mean, my it's typically a full day of uh, it include a full day of golf, boating, um, walking my dog, being with friends, and good good food. So, all right, all right. Nice. All right. cool. Bill, come on, my, chicken uh, my, wings, uh, pizza. Yeah. Here we go. No, <laughs> no, no, my yellow paint is knowing more than you guys do on this podcast on such things as what does the yellow paint mean. So that that, that <laughs> me it. knowing that and you guys not knowing that is makes me far happier than anything else that could happen to me throughout the day. And shout out Janashia, keep tweeting. We love your tweets. My, my yellow paint also is liking Janashia tweets. By the way, so <laughs> there you go. Um, so our next guest, our uh, is. I don't know if everyone has seen the news that Paul Asiante, one of the legends of squash in the United States, um, obviously 
considered widely the greatest, uh, one of the greatest coaches in college sports and maybe one of the greatest coaches in any sport of all time, retired this past week or announced his retirement after 30 years at Trinity College. Um, I'm just going to read quickly before we get our guest on uh, some of his accomplishments. 13 straight national championships, 17 total national championships, 252 wins in a row, 507 overall wins at uh, at Trinity and 618 wins overall as a college squash coach. And and I think more so than the wins, Connor, and you talked you and I talked about this this morning is the number of losses he had at Trinity is just it's staggering. It's unbelievable. What what was that number? 29. 29 losses in 30 years at Trinity. Not, 95% winning average. Wow. <laughs> Just absolutely unheard of. So um, since we, we all know uh, Paul Asiante, um, per, you know, I know him pretty well. Connor, I know you know him. PJ, I know you know him. Everyone who's involved with squash in the United States knows him. But um, yeah. we brought on uh, Simba Mawadi. He's the squash director at Street Squash um, in New York. Uh, no, wife, I looked it, it up. I looked it up. I looked it up. Connor thought you were the um, chief squash the, officer. The chief squash officer. No, I, I, we asked to have that changed. Uh, okay. This, that's not. That's not. That's not. It's too much. So we went with squash. Too much. Okay. Squash directors. I like it though. C- CSO starring Ted Danson, David Caruso, <laughs> and Simone Mawadi. Tuesday nights, CSO New York. But no, he's the he's the uh, the squash director at Street Squash, which is a an SEA uh, program for. Um, underserved uh children in the uh in the harlem area the harlem new york area as i always say simba is also my favorite squash pro above 96th street in new york city as i refer to him as so um and he but more importantly for the purposes of this show simba was a uh four-year national champion uh player at trinity college under paul asiante so we brought him on so he could talk a little bit about paul's legacy uh what paul meant to him and uh talk about the the overall his time playing at trinity and maybe give us a few asiante anecdotes so uh <laughs> welcome to the show Simba. thank you so much guys i really appreciate having you i mean you having me um big fan of the show actually so on my commute it's another reason we had john yeah uh, <laughs> So long time listener, short time caller, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome, great to have you. So, so talk about Paul Asiante's um, legacy, uh, per, both personally and in the world of squash. I mean, obviously, you're as in, in in the world of squash as any of us. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know where to start. Really, let's start with just how I got here. So, grew up in Zimbabwe. He recruited me out of Zimbabwe through friends of mine, uh, people that had played at Trinity prior to me coming over, um, had the opportunity to go to Milan for the World Juniors, got recruited by a bunch of other schools. And, you know, at the end of the day, Paul was just way more convincing. Um, he's just, it's a different phone call when you get that phone call from him, right? Like, he makes you feel like you're at home before you even get there. So, convinced me to come over. In those days, you didn't do college visits. You just show up at the school and that's it. You start. Um, and uh, I was so happy to get to get there. I got there in January. A lot of us did that because of the way the school years work in the rest of the world, right? Like school ends in December. So we, I came in January that year and um, was uh, blown away by the, the what I by the way he did things. Like he's not, in my opinion, a coach per se in the biggest, you know, in the strictest definition of the word. Uh, he does other things extremely well. Like he's a great people manager, helps you grow, and he's a great, great mentor. So that would be kind of the the way I would describe him the most. I don't think he changed anyone's swing in those thirty odd years. You know, everyone's <laughs> you come with a bad swing, you're not gonna leave with a better swing. That's for sure. You'd have to see PJ to get to get that. <laughs> so I mean, what we've seen from the outside is it like the key to his success is just bringing together individuals to really act as a team. And when did did you notice that sort of happening for you and your experience there, where you're like, hey, I, I, my performance as a team matters more than just you individually? Yeah, I mean, I think it starts with where he sits and the people he spends the most time with. So you'd feel, you'd think you'd want to be around the Bassett Chowdhury's, the Marcus Cow, like the, the top players all the time. And he actually ended up spending the majority of his time with the guys like me at the bottom of the lineup. So... He put a lot of, I mean, confidence in people that played 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Like, we were so deep uh, and made that group of people feel 
heard and seen, I guess. And so no one was ever on a pedestal. No one was ever, the, you know, we've got to treat someone different. Um, and then he just instilled the, the team ethic there, like, was just so different. We all ate every meal together, like, all the time. Like, that's rare in college, right? So we, we, we would eat two or three meals a day together every day. And so that was a big part of it. And then just just individual attention to detail for each player. That's hard to do in college. When you've got, in, in those days, we had 20 people on the team. So he knew everything mm-hmm. about everyone individually. So I think that's a, that's a big part of it as well. When, just when, um, you know, it's interesting we're, t- we're, we're here to talk about Asante and we, can, we just read <laughs> off his stats, right, which are just unbelievable. But I think the, the next story uh, over the next 20 years is going to be the, what I call the Trinity effect of like people like yourself who were uh, coached under him but now have stayed in the U.S. and now are impacting the culture of squash in the U.S. What do you see as something that you directly can point towards like what you experienced at Trinity and now you're trying to do with your your players that you influence? Like, is there anything you point towards like, ah, that that is because of Asiante? Yeah, I think everyone that does it, I, I can mention a couple of names here, like Manek Matho in doubles, um, Lafika with his coaching and his expertise. He's a, a Trinity grad. Uh, the people that have stayed in squash probably use a lot of his quotes in their own coaching, right? So I'll speak, I'll say things to kids that I heard when I was in college. And so we use a lot of his like euphorisms or whatever the word is, like the way he like gets things across, we would use with our own kids. Um, and then it's overall just the passion of the game and how you can use it to change kids' lives, right? Like all people's lives. So that's that's a big one as well. So. What's the saying that you use? Uh, I mean, the biggest one, like I think it's a bit personal, is like understanding the, the, the gravity of pressure. But he's always, he, he talks a lot about like managing moments so that's a big one. Like, manage every moment as best as you can in the match. Not the entire, don't focus on the entire result. Manage the key moments of matches, um, and that could be, you know, two all in the first. The way, like, why are you fist pumping at two all in the first? There's nothing happening there, right? Like, so you need to just preserve your emotional and, and, and mental energy for the bigger points of the match and how to manage those times. I've got a question for you, Simba. You was obviously there, excuse me, for four years. Can you remember a defining moment or like a pre-match speech or a talk that Asiante would have given? And what kind of a talk would it have been? Did he get in the players' faces or was he very calm? Or what was it about those kind of talks that would resonate and how would that make you feel before you stepped on the court? Because he's, he's pulled that team through so many situations that they shouldn't have come through. And there's obviously reason behind that. Where would that have been instilled? So I would start off with there's two key moments in my, in my time there. Um, and um, I'll, do, I'll do a key moment and then I'll do a speech. That's, we'll do the key moment yeah. first. Key moment would have been Gustav Dedes playing Yasel Halaby, who was like at that point untouchable, number one at Princeton. He, yeah, I remember that one. He was unbelievable. And that, and I think it goes back to something that's not in the stats. I would love to see how many 5-4 matches Trinity won. Like, yeah. there's mm-hmm. a lot that, of That's it. what I meant. I mean, if you look at the record, yeah. there were so many games that, that, that you guys shouldn't have come through that you did. Yeah. And there's obviously, it's not purely by luck or stroke of fortune is yeah. is good reason for that. Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, really like to have some strong players in certain positions. And then on that night, the Yasa and Gustav was the miracle, in my opinion. Like, that shouldn't yeah. have happened. He's two, yeah. maybe two love down, two one down. I remember being there with two of the other captains of the team. And again, this is how global the team was. So Gustav was Swedish, playing an Egyptian. I'm sitting in coach's office because I can't watch anymore with a Brazilian <laughs> and an Indian guy. Eduardo Pereira and Sahil Vora, the, my two captains that year. And he walks in there and is irate at us for not watching the match. He's basically saying, you guys have to be able to lose. You have to be ready to lose. Get ready to like go go shake the late, the late Bob Callahan's hand, right? Like get ready to shake his hand, basically. It's yeah. over. Um, we go there. I sit next to him. Gustav somehow pulls out the game. He comes off and Gustav said, the first thing he said was, I think I can beat this guy. 
and wow. we had to look as if we believed him. It's one of those moments, <laughs> right? Like you have to put on the you put on the face, like okay. And it's Gustav. Like if you if you talk to him at all, he's he's a very matter of fact person. So we're just like okay, fine. But unbeknownst to us, we didn't know that Yas had been dealing with a lot of foot injuries and foot stuff that 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 day and that season. So we just thought this was just unbelievable what he was doing. And Yasser showed a lot of guts and determination. But in the end, we were four all with Yasser Al Halabi to close it out. Princeton was going to win. Like, you know, it yeah. was over. And yeah. so Gustav pulls that out. He, it was unbelievable that he won that match the next morning, which I don't even think happens in college squash anymore. We went all to breakfast as we do. And he got a standing ovation from the, from the, from the students. Walked in. 60 students got up in the dining hall. That doesn't happen. In, that doesn't happen, wow. um, you know, like now. I'm pretty sure, like, if Victor yeah. Kwan or, I don't know, if uh, <laughs> Yusuf Ibrahim walks into a Princeton dining hall and no one's standing up, they probably don't even know who he is. So it's, you right. know, so it's... That's like an NCAA basketball thing where the kid wins, hits the winning shot and goes to class on Monday morning and people, his class stands up yeah. and cheers from it's only yeah. You only see that in, like, basketball and things such as that. Yeah, so yeah. that would be the defining moment for me, PJ, in my time there. Um yeah. It was just a phenomenal time. A, a positive defining moment and negative would have been Basa Chowdhury and the Yale kid. They had a bit of a bust yeah. up there and that was a little bit negative. And I don't know how in this day and age with the way we treat Asal and all these other things, like it was a really tenuous time there. Uh, but we got through that. Basit's doing great in Pakistan. He's, I talked to him a bunch and he's doing well. So, um, And then the speeches... There's one speech. It's before final, and this, I mean, this will, I, I'd love to see the reaction of you guys after this one. So basically, we were going to play Princeton. We're really, we're really strong that year, playing at Yale. And coach was like, do you boys, you guys look like, you feel like, no, are you nervous? And, and we were all like, yeah, fuck, what do you think? We're all nervous, man. Like, it's, <laughs> it's a final. We haven't lost in nine years, like a match in nine years. And uh, we go on and He's like, if you're nervous, I mean, this is not pressure. And we're like, okay, what? Okay, here he goes. And this is what he did all the time. <laughs> He'd be like, this is not pressure, guys. And I'm like, okay, he's just going to give us a, a weird quote from some book he's read, some Zen stuff or whatever. <laughs> and then he just went so serious, dead in our eyes, and goes, pressure's the phone call I got last night from the police department telling me to come and see if the person they have in custody or the person at the morgue or whatever is my son Whoa, because goodness. his son has had very well-documented struggles with, with drugs and stuff. So, I mean, if your coach tells you that before a final, like no matter what you're feeling, all of a sudden that went away like so quick. We were just like, he's dealing. Mm -hmm. And he was really good at that. He took everyone's burdens onto himself and sometimes to his detriment. And so he took all the pressure off you so that you could play. And I remember we smoked Princeton that day. I think we beat wow. them seven, eight, nine. We were three love up before the first round of matches had finished on on the first court. So we were we were three love up in the first forty five minutes. Like it was crazy. And so um, he just was good about taking that off everyone's chest. So offering thought, perspective. Yeah. yeah, I thought he was going to ask what your yellow paint was. No, you know, no, no yellow paint. No yellow <laughs> paint. That. So I have, I do have. All joking aside, I have a serious question. Um, I know, obviously, the the landscape of college squash has changed immensely, Simba, since you since you started playing here back in I think it was two thousand five. Yeah. Um, and how, how did how did Paul Asiante help you guys navigate what was basically the overt racism aimed towards Trinity when they were dominating college squash? I mean, there there was a lot of that, and I saw it when at matches that I went to. I saw it in the audiences, and you guys. Um, it's not easy. Your guys were kids, basically, and you probably didn't understand like why. Why are these people being like this towards us? What What was his advice in regards to that? Yeah, it's good about it's good about telling us a lot about where he was from. He's from the Bronx, and so just he thought of himself as an outsider. He didn't think of himself as being in that world either. And so, again, just taking it off us and putting it on himself, just saying, you know, we're in this together. He allowed us to do things like buy hoodies and like wear hoodies walking into Harvard. Like just everything anti-country club we got to do. We had baggier shorts than most people. Like we had all this stuff. You're allowed to wear crazy colored shoes then, way back in the day. He went and got me like lime green Fila tennis shoes <laughs> just so that I could do it. And he wanted me having my hair long and 
he appreciated all of that and he wanted us to be ourselves. We had like, we had a Brazilian surfer guy on the team. Like you just had people that would never be on another team, right? And so he embraced that part and, and he just stuck up for us. We're like, yeah, full on racism, full on with the signs telling you to go back to your country, all that sort of stuff. Like you're messing up the US game um, a lot. And it's, it's just ironic the amount of us that have stayed on and coach, if I, I'd love to see that number. Amount of Trinity club coaches is up there too. Um, the amount that that group of people has given back to the U.S. in terms of coaching, um, and the way he's changed the landscape of college squash by just in, like globalizing the game. Um, all the stuff he did, I don't know, 15 years ago is what Harvard's doing now, right? So it's it's basically gone full circle. But yeah, it was difficult, but he. He made it that we were one of, like we were part of him. We were like him, so we never felt like. And he was so protective of us as well. So that's awesome. So transitioning, um, you know, we want to give you an opportunity to talk about. You had, you know, all your achievements at Trinity, obviously winning four championships, being part of that, just an incredible program. You have become part of something this year, Simba, that is groundbreaking in itself. Um, you brought the first all-black squash team to the U.S. High School Nationals, uh, Thorogood Marshall High School. Um, talk about that and what that meant to you and how basically carrying carrying on the tradition of groundbreaking uh, in the game of squash, you're carrying on that Asiante tradition for sure. Yeah, no, I think... Uh, so first off, the kids that were on that team, I didn't really coach. It's like I have to give credit to the coaches who brought those kids into, into street squash, taught them the game. Um, and then it was a, a great coincidence that they all stayed in the same school you need seven kids to be from the same school to go to these things. So we had, we had nine and then we ended up literally just having seven available. So we had the bare minimum you could have. And yeah, I've, I said it in the speech at the prize giving, we came second in, in division six, <laughs> but um, I said it then and I still believe it now. That's the biggest thing I've done in squash to this point. So wow. it's the most, for me, it's the most, impre- like the most important thing I've done um, and I'm not like a great player or anything like that. I'm just a really big, you know, nerd of the game. PJ's my de facto squash mentor. I've like looked up to him for years. Um, but you know, that was, I mean, to walk into the national center with an all black squash team for the high school nationals and be in a final is pretty, pretty wild stuff. And I don't know. I mean, I hope we can do it again next year. That's awesome. It's a lot to try, but, um, the kids were amazing and they had a lot of courage to be there. So I was super proud of them. It's my, it's the biggest accomplishment I've done. I've done a, a lot of cool things. That's number one on the list. For oh, con- congratulations on that. The, the fact that you, well, you ruined it all by saying you looked up to PJ and he was your mentor. That's going to get you banned from the show. You think Asal's going to get banned from the PSA tour for a couple months? You've been banned from the show for may- maybe six months. <laughs> this, this is actually a really cute story. And I only found this out when I was playing out playing around the golf with Simba about a few years ago when we were up in uh, in Boston. But Simba told me, he said there, that he was a real student of the game. And when he was at school, in his pencil case, he used to have photos of the top 10 players in the world. Oh, no. Is that right, Simba? And I think I was number four at the time. So Yeah, I mean, you're number four at the time. A couple of heavy hitters in front of you there, PJ, not your yeah. fault. You know. <laughs> yeah, I knew couple my place. I knew my legends. place, Simba, don't worry. It's all right. It was all good. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, okay. so I had that. It was pretty cool, too. And then to just meet PJ was amazing the so, first time, right? So so now the band's a year, so let's see if you want to keep, you want to keep going. We can, see how long, we can see how long this could go for. So, so I guess what, what do I need to do to get banned? Exactly. So, so Simba, we really appreciate you coming on, but I do have a couple, you know, I know those are some, he- some heavy, uh, some heavy discussions we just had here. So I have a couple light, light questions for you to end this on. Um, and I just appreciate your indulgence. And I've always wondered this, you and I have played golf a couple of times and, you know, we try to focus on our golf, golf when we're playing. So I didn't really pin you down on these. So two things, um, did you arrive in the U S on new year's day in just a t-shirt and flip-flops true or false? Date is wrong. Uh, attire is correct. So just the t-shirt and flip-flops and, and, and sweatpants, no, no jacket, no anything. Did not own that. Don't need that. <laughs> Did you not need? What? So, so I've, I've don't always, need a, <laughs> okay. don't need a North face. you know what? <laughs> All right. Fair, fair, fair enough. Did, did you not have the internet in Zimbabwe to know that it was going to be cold where you were going? 
uh, yeah, let's just go back to the fact that it was 2004 or whatever. Uh-huh. I'm from Zimbabwe and there was no, I mean, I had to go to internet cafes just to like get back to my emails. So okay. no internet, no, <laughs> there's no phone, smartphones. There's no Facebook then really. So okay. I didn't know. So true. Was, so it's it was a, snowing. So true story. Snowing. True story. True story. January 26th. January 26th. Snowing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Lastly. Lastly, and now this is after after being in the United States for four years, so no excuses about no internet, and I lived in Zimbabwe, and it was, you know, we were removed from the rest of the world, which I don't believe, by the way. But next question. Did you not know until your senior, the end of your senior year that Simba was from the Lion King? That is that's ridiculous. Of course, it's, I knew. I, I mean, Not according to Run to the Roar. So there's some inaccuracies in there. Okay. I think there's a little bit. Uh, <laughs> okay, one. I haven't read the, haven't read the book by the way. But you, uh, you haven't read Run to the Roar? No, you don't read things you live through. Okay. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> wow, you got That's a t-shirt that right there, t-shirt Simba. Right there. Oh my gosh! Okay, so one for two, one for two, and Run for the Roar. Uh, it, things that I thought were inaccurate. So there you go. My father was not a policeman either. That's another one I read about. <laughs> so that was not accurate. But no, I mean, the book was great. I hope he does another one. So, And uh, could I leave with one more thing? Because I just didn't get to it in the discussion. Of, co- but, of course. Uh, uh, super honored. In 2016, I got to, um, um, he called me and he said, Simba, they're going to give me, they're going to put me in the Hall of Fame for U.S. Wow. Coach. And I want you to do the intro speech for that. So oh, I wow. said TMA was like the biggest thing I've done. That's an extremely close second. Um, we had a big group of alumni there that day, uh, and I got to speak and introduce Paul as like an, a U.S. squash, like Hall of Fame inductee. And I have the speech still on me and you know, on my phone and stuff like that. So it's just the stuff he's allowed me to participate in and do. He was at my wedding, walked my mother down the aisle. Like it was, he's just been involved in so much of my life. And so... It's, it's, I haven't called him yet. I haven't told, I haven't called him about retiring yet. And so I just, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to say to him because I'm just that, like, I needed to just chill for a little bit and then figure out what I'm, I will say. But he's been important to me in many ways. And so, and he, and, he, and the other one is that he answers the phone all the time. That's impossible. I, I don't understand how he does that. I share that Simba in terms of like, it is amazing how he operates the number of emails he gets to the, it can be a three minute conversation. Cause I always kind of look, it was like, it felt like 30 minutes, yeah. right? The attention he gives you how like on point it is. And he has, he does that with so many of his players over time. Like yeah. they're all deep, meaningful connections that he's able to balance somehow. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how he does it. Yeah. He's never not picked up the phone. That's insane. Like, I can't imagine how many calls he gets a day. <laughs> so, it's impressive. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you coming on, Simba. It was uh, it was great having you, and um, we'll have you on. At, what is today? The 3-20-23. So your band will be up on 3 So we will speak to you then. I appreciate that. You'll be in touch with my lawyers. Thank you so much. <laughs> See you on the golf course, boys. Thanks for listening to another show on SQR Squash Radio. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen. And we have a quick ask. In an effort to help us grow, if you have a quick minute, please consider sharing an episode with a friend who might be interested or leaving a rating on any of the platforms you listen to your podcast. It would mean a lot to me and the rest of the team. Thanks so much and have a great day.